0: Good morning, everybody. We're in, as you can see on the screen, we're in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. So if you got your word, go ahead and turn there. Let's read our text together, which is short, but let's read our text and then let's ask God's blessing on it. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's ask God's blessing on the word today. Lord, I am vastly inadequate to expound any helpful way on these things. And so your spirit must enter in and take over. And so we pray as, as things are shared, as hard as they may be, Father, we pray that we would respond in your grace. Um, so give us more and more of that today as we listen and as we, um, as we change as you're calling us to, we pray for that, that gift of faith, um, to, and change to do that. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, last week, Jason showed us uh, J- Jesus' response to Peter, right? Uh, he mentioned that with the kids. Um, he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, that is a an unusual thing to say to the guy who had just, like, a few breaths before that said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, man, you got it you got it right on, Peter. Uh, But Jesus knew his response to Peter came out of his understanding that he had to go to the cross. The fate of mankind depended on that. And he knew that, but Peter didn't. I think it's interesting. and This is one of those little things that you may not notice unless you're looking for, um, but just some of the humor of God. Peter's name means rock. And in the text that Jason preached on, he said, you are a hindrance to me, which means hindrance is translated stumbling block. So Peter goes from a rock to a stumbling block in like one sentence. I just think that's humorous. Maybe it's just me, but um, I just want to remember where we've come from in Matthew. Recently, Jesus is asking the disciples, he said, hey, who are people saying that I am? So they give him the answers that they hear. Then he turned the questions on the disciples. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And a few weeks ago, when we went through that text, the question for us as hearers today was, who do you say Jesus is? Or who is Jesus to you? Because how you answer that determines everything about your life. Today, we're expounding and expanding on that question. And the question today would be, now that you know him, Will you follow him? Will you follow Jesus? Now, this was the first thing that Jesus challenged his disciples with in Matthew chapter 4. Two words that turned the world upside down. Follow me. Now, I gave that title to Becky to put in the bulletin, and then I realized that my name was right underneath of it. And I want to be clear, Rod is not the me that you should be following. Amen. Okay? Amen. Thank you, brother. But we are being called to follow, so if it's not Rod, who is it? Well, that answer seems pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty basic. It's, it's Jesus. And I, I realize that that's a basic thing, but that's foundational to everything we do personally and as a church. We follow Jesus that's the me that we're following the Christ as Peter said the son of the living god it's imperative that we know who Christ is because we follow him so in the first 4 chapters of the book of Matthew uh, I listened to a sermon by David Platt and he very helpfully pointed out that there are 20 pictures of Christ just in the first 4 chapters of Matthew alone uh, just in the very first verse, there are four, and I just want to hit on those just to see the, the richness of the depth of Scripture, but also to help us begin to think clearly about who this is, who this man is that we're being told to follow. So look at verse 1 of the first chapter of Matthew. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very simple verse. But look closely at what's being said. Jesus is our savior. He's the one that this genealogy is about. Prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. He's the one who will save their people, save his people from their sins. He's the savior. Second thing, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's an indication of the fact that he's the promised one from the Old Testament. The one promised all throughout that time. Thirdly, Jesus is, it says, the son of David. He is a king. He is from the kingly line of David that we find in 1 Samuel. And fourthly, he's the son of Abraham. Matthew, the author here, he ties Jesus all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish nation. Right? All the way back to the father of the people of Israel. All the way back to Genesis. He's the son of Abraham. The whole genealogy reminds us of this monumental truth. Jesus is at the center of history. Jesus Is at the center of history. Everything and everyone in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Him. And everyone after Him up to today points back to Him. He's the center of it all. Okay? David Platt said this in the sermon I was listening to. He said something very helpful. He said, Jesus is at the center of it all. You're not the center of history. I'm not at the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. The United States of America is not at the center of history. Billions of people have come and billions of people have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, rulers have come and gone. At the center of it all stands one man, Jesus Christ. He's the center of history. Jesus is the leader of our lives. And I don't think I have to say this to this group, but Jesus is the leader of our church. He was the leader of Ramsey Creek Baptist Church 202 years ago. And he's going to continue to be the leader of this church until the day he comes back for all of his people. Regardless of who stands in this pulpit, Jesus Christ is the leader of our church. And that's good to be reminded of that. We don't follow a man. We follow Jesus Christ. That's who we follow. So, I, I wanted to point out, and if you were in my Sunday school class, students, uh, this is where I said to be paying attention. There's a beautiful truth that's found in Matthew 4, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but... In the, in the concept of following the leader, Jesus' first uh, challenge to his disciples was, follow me. I want to point something out that we see in Matthew 4, and it's this. Jesus was seeking after his disciples. Yes. He went after them. Yes. He went to them where they were, fishing on the lake, and said, follow me. Now, that doesn't seem revolutionary or monumental to us, but in in that day, if you wanted to become a rabbi or something or be just be seen as spiritual or have any kind of training, you would go seek after a leader, a rabbi, someone who was important in the religious uh, world, and you would kind of attach yourself to them to be led by, trained, identified with uh, for, for that sort of purpose. You went and found them. But Jesus didn't do that. He sought after his people. And and really, if you think about it, Jesus Christ was doing the same thing that God the Father has been doing all throughout history. He was initiating a relationship with his people. God was doing this. So, this is kind of God's way, right? God called Noah, God called Abraham, God called Moses, God called David, God called his people, the Israelites, we see in Deuteronomy 7. And and here's the beautiful thing. Just as God the Father called his people in the Old Testament, Jesus is calling his disciples in the New Testament. He says in, in John chapter 15, he says, guys, you didn't choose me, I chose you. There was no ability in these guys, no merit in themselves that would cause Jesus to seek them out in reality. I mean, think about who they were for a minute. Uh, The disciples were mostly, especially these first few that he called, they were lower class country boys who liked fishing. I mean, we can identify with that kind of concept of people. They're lower class country boys who liked fishing. They were nobodies in the world's eyes. They were commoners. They were nothing special. They, in fact, they were full of prejudices. They were full of superstition, even. Jesus would, would, as we talked about, Jesus rebuked their spokesperson and called him the devil. These guys, in and of themselves, held nothing that, that Jesus would say, wow, i got to have you on my team. But yet, this is who Jesus chose to change the world. And there's nothing, here's, here's the beautiful part, there's nothing in you or I that would draw Jesus to us either. There's no innate quality of goodness in us. In fact, Paul teaches in Romans that we're enemies of God, we're rebels running away from Him. But the beauty of the gospel is that God comes running after us. He takes the initiative. He did it with Moses, Abraham, all of the Old Testament figures. He does it with the disciples and men and women. He's pursuing you today, right now. The Father is coming after you. This is the beauty and really the essence of the whole gospel. God is making a way for you to be reconciled back to him. And, and really, this is the common thread between believers in in our church, but believers all over the world. Every believer has this in common. We were all running from God, content to live out our days in rebellion and sin, until one day, by God's grace, we realized that God was instead running to us. That's what we have in common. It's awesome. It's, it's especially helpful when we look at someone that we're in a rift with I, I'm not more important, important than that person because I'm, I'm a sinner just like they are so that in that aspect it, it is cool you know. we in that moment of realizing that God was running to us we, we realized that hopefully that God sent the God who's running after us sent his son to die on a cross to pay the debt of sin that we could not pay on our own and that Jesus died that death for us, but then he rose in victory over the grave three days later, and now when we follow him with our whole lives, he promises never to leave us, never to forsake us, never to leave us on our own, and that's the good news of the gospel. Praise God for the good news. And, and when we realize this good news, God calls us out, out to save us. When we call out, in response to him, his movement, there's no hesitation on his part. That's, that's the amazing part of this. You can think, think about your life. If you're a Christian, if your life prior to Christ, you are going to be hard pressed to find some event, some quality that you realize that God would have said, I don't think I can use you. I don't think I can take you. You're too broken. We, we think that pretty regularly, I'm afraid. Uh, but God's not there saying, I'm sorry, you're just too far gone. I can't help you. We, like I said, we think that and we're wrong, brothers and sisters. There's no hesitation on God's part. He doesn't, when we cry out in response to, for salvation... He doesn't get out his checklist and say, oh, well, they missed seven Sundays of church last year or eight Sundays of Sunday school or home team or youth group or whatever the gauge is that we tend to use. God's not doing that. When we cry out to God for salvation, He will save us because He's already done everything necessary to save us. And it's because of His grace, not because of our worthiness. The cross is, in a sense, a picture of God's deep love for sinners, but it's more a picture of of our unworthiness and God's grace. But I I want to point out, too, as we continue in this discussion, that God does the work to save us. He initiates that relationship, and then we respond to that. But he saves us to actually do something. Okay, God has not saved any Christian in any part of the world to go to a church building and sit in a a row or a pew and then go home and continue with life as normal every other day of the week. That's not what God has saved you to do. He saved you to do something. He saved you to follow Jesus. Okay, I know we're stuck there. We're not moving beyond that yet because this is foundational and important. We're called to follow Jesus. He saved you to follow him. Yes. So think about this. I, I think this is a humorous scenario. Jason and I were talking, uh, Wednesday night and we we're just laughing about this. P- uh, Peter has just rebuked the Christ, the son of the living God, um, and said, no, you're wrong. And Jason kind of unfolded some of those neat things. You can go on the website and listen to his message from last week. It's great, um, but we're we're laughing about the concept, the idea that he is just rebuked for saying, "Jesus, you don't, you can't go to the cross, you can't do that," because that didn't fit in the concept of Peter's Messiah at that point. So. Peter's saying, "No, Jesus, you can't have the cross." And now Jesus turns around in the next breath and says, "Peter, the only way for you to come with me is if you take up a cross." You see the irony and the humor, and I think that's that's funny. Um, but uh, yeah, you, we can just imagine Peter's face of unbelief. Um, Uh, maybe even a little disgust, I'm not sure. But I want to point out as we continue here that when we follow Jesus, there's going to be two things from this text that characterize our lives. And I'll just be painfully honest with you guys. This is a hard sermon for me to preach because I feel so inadequate to do this myself. And yet, we need to hear this, you and me both. So we're going to we're gonna go through it together, okay? But there's two things that characterize the life of someone who's really following Jesus. And Jesus says it right here. The first thing is you're going to deny yourself. And the second thing is you're going to take up your cross. When following him, those things are going to characterize our lives. And we're going to start with the, where Jesus does with the deny yourself. What does this mean? As I was reading through this and studying on this this week, something struck me that I had not seen before, and it should... It should be obvious to a good student of the Bible. Uh, you should look at the text before the one you're concerned with and the text after. And so right before, I started in verse 23. That was my job this morning. Or 24. Jason finished in 23. And in 23, when Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. Look back at that. What's the last sentence of that verse? He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, on the things of man i', I, I not connected that because I think there's a there 's a, a chapter heading or not a chapter, but a section heading in our Bibles right there, and it breaks it and that did me a disservice here because that 's directly I think connected to what Jesus says about taking up your cross and following him so think about that for a second with me right away after he rebukes peter and says hey you 're not thinking right right away he starts explaining how people are supposed to follow in the right way, and it's all connected to the idea, to the concept of where your mind is set. Okay? Is my mind set on the things of God? Or is my mind set on the things of man? Is it on myself? Or the things of God? Where is your mind set? I came to this difficult and convicting Realization that you and I will never be able of really denying ourselves if we set our minds on the things of man. We cannot obey what Jesus says in following him if our minds are set on the things of man, on the things of this world, in our own wisdom and understanding. It will not be possible because it preceded Jesus' instructions on how to follow him. But this was Jesus' rebuke to Peter, wasn't it? You're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. In order to truly follow him, your mind has to change focus. It has to be focused on God. So this brings out real practical and uncomfortable questions. What is my mind focused on? What dominates Rod O'Mis's thoughts? What dominates your thoughts what are you setting your mind on is it is it money pursuit of money is it your reputation is it your possessions is it what you have is it how you look is it just control in life i want us to turn to a really helpful passage in colossians chapter 3 so colossians chapter 3 you can keep your finger in matthew Sixteen, but look at Colossians chapter three with me. Um, Start in the first verse of Colossians, chapter three. Colossians chapter three verse one. I'll be reading from the ESV version. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds... Does this wording seem familiar? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Man, this... This is comparable to Matthew 16, what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, I wonder where Paul got it. But keep reading in verse 5. We start; He starts to unpack, flesh this out a little bit. Put to death, so he's saying, if your mind is set on the things of man, here's what you do. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, we're just told what we should stop. Now, what should we do instead? Verse 12, Put on then... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If God has saved you, your fleshly desires have died and you are hidden with Christ in God. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. If God has saved you, your fleshly desires have died and you are hidden with Christ in God. If you're side-by-side side with Christ in God, would your thoughts be dominated by love of money? If you're side-by-side side with Christ in God, would your thoughts be dominated by furthering your reputation? Would they be dominated by needing to have the control in a relationship or a situation? Are you going to be angry if you're hidden with Christ in God? Are you going to slander other people? Are you going to say obscene things or live that way? Are you going to lie to people? If our lives are marked by those things, the things of man, the things of the flesh, then I think we have to expect Jesus to spin around and tell us to get behind Him. If my mark, if my life is marked by these things, I should expect at any point Jesus to spin around and say, Rod, get behind me. You do not have your mind in the right place. You're not setting it on the things of God. You're you're setting it on yourself. You're setting it on the things of man. Instead, Paul says to the church, mind you, if their minds are set on God, the Spirit, not the flesh, they're going to be marked by a list of different characteristics and qualities. He says, your life will be marked by patience. Brothers and sisters in the church, are we patient with one another? Our lives are going to be marked, if our if our minds are set on the things of God, they're going to be marked with bearing with one another, he says in this chapter, chapter 3 of Colossians, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. Loving one another. Are those the things that characterize you? You will never be capable of those things if you continue to set your minds on the things of the flesh, things of man. If we follow Jesus, we will have to deny ourselves. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about denying yourself that extra dessert at the church picnic. Okay? I mean, unless unless gluttony is a big problem for you, then I am talking about that, Um, because you said amen really loud. That's why I'm looking at you. (laughs) When Jesus is saying, deny yourself, I think he had a little bit more in mind than, you know, don't get that extra dessert. I'm talking about giving up your own plans and your own desires and replacing them with God's plans and desires for your life. If you're following Jesus, you're gonna constantly be putting aside self-righteousness and self-indulgence. And this is why this is hard for me to preach. Cause I struggle with this just like you guys do. Are we willing, am I willing to sacrifice the things that I think belong to me? Uh, my desires, my ambitions, My hopes, my dreams, my possessions are these things that I'm willing to deny, to give up in order to run after something better. That's hard because we too often view those other things as better than Jesus and they've become idols in our hearts. This following Jesus this way doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're a robot. Denying yourself all these things. It doesn't mean that you're a robot. It doesn't mean that you are a pushover. Um, It doesn't even mean that you lose your individual personality that God has given you. Denying yourself to follow Jesus really just means that your view is so fixed on Christ and away from yourself that his plans for your life become your plans for your life. I heard someone say this concept, we become like what we behold. Or we become what we behold. The more we watch, the more we study, the more we listen to someone, the more like them we become. I think that's a concept that's played out in every area of life, not just in the church realm or in spiritual things. We become like what we behold. So... Uh, that begs the question, what are we beholding? What are we putting in front of us? What are we focusing on day in and day out? Because the truth is, the more that you behold Jesus, set your eyes on Him, set your mind on Him, the more that we're going to become like Him. We are, we become like what we behold. You know, so often we ask God, we say, God, show us your plan for my life uh, i 'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I would guess that most of us in this room have asked God that question, God, what are your plans for my life the The, the problem is when God makes those plans clear and we don 't like them right I mean this is true for all of us um, because Yeah, and I I realize uh, the group that I'm talking to this morning, but this is true, right? This is true because we resist and we struggle against God's plans for our lives when they don't match up with ours. And this is difficult because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would recognize that this is kind of how God works most of the time. There's not a person in this room, guarantee it, that could raise their hand and say, my life has played out exactly how I thought it would. No one here would, could do that, guaranteed. And yet, God gives us opportunity... To die to ourselves, to die to our own earthly ideas and plans for our lives. He, He gives us opportunity to die to those things every day, but often we're so busy fighting with God about what His plans are for our life that they're not matching our plans that we totally miss those opportunities. And we end up living for ourselves instead of dying to ourselves. We try desperately to save the lives we think we should have instead of losing our lives for his sake. And that that hurts, brothers and sisters. That's hard to realize and yet it's true. It's true of me and I, I bet it's true of you. And yet this is what we're called as followers of Christ to do, to deny ourselves. Secondly, we're called to take up our cross. Now, when Jesus said this to his disciples in this at that time their minds would have jumped immediately to something that ours probably don't okay when we hear this we think that God is just kind of calling us to deal with whatever problems that we're experiencing in life currently right well that's just my cross to bear we say but when the disciples heard this when they heard Jesus say hey take up your cross immediately in their mind scenes of a crucifixion are starting to play Because they know a cross always leads to death, Mm -hmm. to crucifixion, to something being different. Mm -hmm. The disciples knew that anyone carrying a cross was a dead man walking. There wasn't any coming back from that. You pick one of those things up, first of all, it's usually not by your own choice. And secondly, once you do, you're only leaving one way they understood what Jesus was really saying. And he was saying this, Guys, your life as you once knew it is over. The plans you have are over. Because you shouldn't be setting your minds on your own plans, the things of man. Our minds should be set on the things of God. And truth be told, the crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. It might not be so much in 2018 as it was for the disciples, but it is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. The ESV study Bible notes say this about it. A disciple must deny himself, die to self-will. He must take up his cross, embrace God's will no matter the cost, and follow Christ. That's what a disciple is. That's what a disciple does. And yet, many churches' call to salvation is so completely void of this kind of language that I hesitate to even call that a real call to salvation. Because we hear so many good things, and, and there are good things in the gospel. I hope you understand me saying that today. But there is a call from Jesus Christ that you have to die to yourself. And you have to take up a cross. Take up God's plans for your life, not your own. Can, can someone be saved if they still view themselves as the most important thing in life? Can someone be saved if the most important thing to them is their own wants, desires, and will? Another question is, can someone be saved if they believe their sin really isn't that bad? Think of this consider this question too. Can someone be saved and not follow Jesus? Because American Christianity contains a lot of people who live that way. I mean, I, I, love, I, I love Jesus. I know God. But then they're called to, to sacrifice something in their life. They're not going to do that. What what does that show us about their relationship with Christ? Shows us something, doesn't it? We cannot, in fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has rightly said, "Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ." You guys understand that? You can't have you can't have Christ if you are not a disciple. You can't be a Christian if you're not following Jesus. When you die to yourself, you're not simply leaving sin and self behind. You're committing to something. You're committing to someone. Jesus, follow him, pursue him, walk in his footsteps according to his word, adhering to his ways, trusting in his power, living for his purpose. That's what that means. It sounds foolish to the world, and it it honestly might even sound foolish to you today. I don't know. But this is the way God says you will find life. You want to find life? Lose it. Lose it. God, give your life to God. Your hopes, your dreams, your plan. And when you're losing your life to God, you're simultaneously finding real, actual life. This is what Jason said with the kids. You'll find a real life when you give up your life. And this is such a magnificent reversal of things. Live for yourself, you're going to die. Die to yourself, and you're going to live. You can work hard to gain wealth and riches, power and position. And as Jesus says in Matthew 16, you, you can still forfeit your soul. You can still not be really living... This tells me that what we do in this life here now matters. And not only that, but it's possible to look great by worldly standards and be eternally removed from God. And this is the scary thing. And here's the, tr- but this is the truth. Stockpiling stuff will lead to spiritual death and separation from God forever if your concern is stockpiling stuff, and this is why he says, you know, you can gain the whole world and not have anything and lose your soul. So, this goes back to the questions that we asked at the beginning. What dominates your thoughts? Where are you setting your mind? Is it on earthly things? John Piper said, if you love the world, it will pass away and take you with it. And that's true. If your mind is set there, you're going to go where it goes. 1 John two seventeen says this very thing. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's move to verses 27 and 28 as we close. We're going to touch on these things. Uh, th- this is a sometimes a difficult passage to interpret. There's debate on what these verses mean. So based on the immediate context, I'm inclined to read them, inclined to read them this way. As we deny ourselves and take up our cross, we should be looking for the King to come. Just simplify it maybe a little too much this morning, but you know, verse 27 I think is pretty clear that has to do with Jesus returning again to bring his people home to glory. That's coming. Verse 28 has to do with Jesus upcoming to them, upcoming transfiguration or and or the spread of the gospel after the transfiguration through the power of Jesus' authority at work in the disciples and in the early church. These things were coming. That's why he said some uh, won't some will be here when the Son of Man comes. This was what he was expecting. Whichever interpretation seems most correct to us, I, I hope that the main point is clear, and that's this the Son of Man is coming. Be prepared for it. Be prepared for Christ's coming. It says He's gonna repay each one according to what He has done. Now I just wanna be clear, Jesus is not preaching a works-based theology here. It says He's gonna repay each person according to what He has done. It's, this, the scenario is not gonna play out like this. Based on all of your good things, right, Jesus is gonna repay the, you for those, but if they outweigh your bad things, then you're cool. This, that's works-based theology. Your good outweighs your bad, and that keeps you saved or right before God. Jesus is not teaching that here. He's saying this. Uh, it's tied back to the question that he asked his disciples, that we asked ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say I am, he said. How you answer that question determines how Jesus is going to respond to you on that day when He comes in glory. How you answer that question determines how He's going to respond to you. So it it, it looks like this. And if you have your notes, this is written in there because I wanted to be clear. If Jesus is the Son of God to you and you seek seek to take up your cross, die to yourself and follow Him, then He will respond to you or repay you based on your obedience to that call. He will save you and you will be forever with the Father and Him in, in heaven. He will respond to you based on your response to His question, who do you say I am? Conversely, if Jesus means nothing to you, or maybe you say with your mouth that He does, but then your lifestyle contradicts that in every facet, then He is going to respond to you, or He's going to repay you based on your disobedience to His call. He will judge you for your rejection of Christ and you will be separated from the Father forever in the place that Jesus taught is the place of hell. But, praise be to God. As we've already said, right now, God in His grace is running to you. He's calling to you. If you deny yourself, if you follow Him, if you embrace His plans for your life, if you recognize the truth that what He has is always better than what you plan, He will save you. Jesus sent, I'm sorry, God sent Jesus to die for your sins, to pay the debt that you could never pay on your own. And the truth is, the beauty of this all is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes God's going to save. You may not feel worthy of that. You may not think you're part of God's family or you could ever be part of God's family, but the the glorious truth of the gospel is that very thing, that even when you don't feel that way, God is calling to you, and when you respond in repentance and faith, there is no doubt He will save you. There's no hesitation on His part. There's no questioning of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. There's no looking at the checklist of how many times you've missed or gone to church that year or how good or bad you've been. If you cry out to God in true repentance and faith and belief, He will save you. You will be saved. Today, God is still chasing after you. He's still running after you with His never-ending love. The question is, Will you die to yourself to live for him? Will I die to myself to live for Christ? I, I pray for God's grace to do that. And I pray for God's grace in your life to do that. The, the gospel message is incomplete if we don't call for a response. And so this is your call today, brothers and sisters, visitors, men and women, boys and girls. God is chasing after you because he desperately loves you. Respond appropriately to Jesus today and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, this truth, this is our story. This is our song. The truth that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. God, thank you so much. Lord, I know also it's true that we will become like what we behold. And so I pray today, Lord, that as we're thinking on these things, God, that we would sit or literally stand, however you lead us, we would just rest in you and behold the person of Christ. We would behold our God. So as we sing this song that reminds us of that truth, that challenge, God, be merciful to us sinners. Show us grace. Run after us. A few more steps. Lord, and I pray as as hearers that we would respond in grace in your way today. We know you're coming back, Jesus. Make us ready. In your name we pray. Amen.